Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. A divided Supreme Court discussed the future of Roe v. Wade this week and appeared ready to uphold a Mississippi law banning abortion after 15 weeks. In Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, the state of Mississippi is asking the court to overturn Roe, the 1973 landmark decision legalizing abortion during the first two trimesters of pregnancy, and return the issue to the states. While New York codified abortion rights into state law in 2019, the case has local providers concerned. The Legislative Gazette's Jesse King spoke with Shelley Hegan, president of Upper Hudson Planned Parenthood. I think it's a really sad day for the court and for the country. You know, I think um, it was Justice Kagan who pointed out that making politics out of Roe is playing right into the hands of saying that the court is a political body. You know, we had other cases that were essentially identical cases that the court did not hear because of the precedent of Roe v. Wade. This case was taken up with the sole purpose of um, a direct assault on Roe. So that it feels pretty sad. Yes, the state of Mississippi in this case is essentially asking to overturn Roe. What would that mean for Planned Parenthoods and other abortion providers across the country? I mean, I think it means two things in a, in a broad sense. For starters, we have 16 states that have trigger laws on the books right now, boom. Those states will have no access to abortion for people who live there, which means depending upon your ability to pay to get out of there, uh, your freedoms are going to be limited if you live in those states. And 24 states in total are really poised to severely limit access to abortion. So we're looking at half of our country having no access or very little access to basic health care, um, and that is discriminatory at, at, its, at its core. There is always a way for a wealthy white woman to get an abortion if she needs one. It is not always possible for an immigrant person or a black or brown person or a person who's living paycheck to paycheck to be able to up and access abortion if they want to. So that's one thing. But I think it's also important to know that these are all places where abortion has been under attack for decades. And so we do have rights in some states, but it doesn't mean that we have access in some states. So Mississippi is talking about closing its only abortion clinic. It's hard for us in New York to imagine what that's like. There is no abortion access in several states in the country right now. Many more have one, maybe two providers. Here in the Northeast, we have this experience of maybe more dense populations. We have more access and more freedom. And we all live in the same country, and it doesn't seem right to me that we have more freedoms than our brothers or sisters in Texas or in Nebraska. 
today there was a lot of discussion around that mark where you know a law might say that abortion is no longer allowed at this point so mm-hmm. sort of like why shouldn't mississippi put that line at 15 weeks or why is the current line at like 22 to 24 weeks set by row more appropriate what do you make of the conversation around that I mean, I think that's been a problem with Roe since Roe was written. So Roe says that the state had a, has a vested interest in the pregnancy after the point of viability. Viability has always been a sort of quasi-science, quasi-religious conversation. Some religions see conception as the moment there's a life. Other religions say it's at birth. There is no real line. It's an artificial conversation. Science has a different approach to it. So Rose always been sort of faulty on that point. And so that's part of what has continued to cause this churning fight is, well, what do you mean by viability? I think one of the arguments today was like science has changed so much. So viability is earlier than it ever was. But the reality is viability is not 15 weeks. And so even if you want to make a purely viability argument, like could this pregnancy exist outside of the parent's body as well as inside, that's not 15 weeks. Aside from the conversation about viability, there's also like, is it possible for someone to seek that care in 15 weeks? I mean, that is always a conversation, one that I think for people who have struggled with their fertility, so really worked hard to become pregnant, they probably have a hard time understanding that, or people who who have never been or could never become pregnant, like Justice Kavanaugh, for example. 15 weeks seems like, oh, of course you're going to know long before then. But for young people who may not yet have regular periods, for people with certain BMIs whose periods may be um, non-regular, you're really only talking about three periods. So the first one may have come. You know, you're eight weeks before you know it. And you can get to 12 weeks and still have maybe had spotting. So it's entirely possible that people who are not seeking pregnancy, who are on contraception, find themselves pregnant and don't know it. It is not typical, but it is certainly not impossible. I know like in New York State, you know, abortion rights are pretty well protected by the laws here. But what are you hearing from abortion providers in other areas of the country? People are really brokenhearted about what this means for our patients. And I think it's so easy to have politicized this discussion. Our country's always been very good at demonizing women and judging women for the choices that they're making. And for providers in states across the country where they're going to have their hands tied and be unable to provide their patients with the care that they're coming to them for um, is absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, a decision on the case isn't expected until this summer, but what do you see as being next? Like, are there any steps that abortion providers can take in the meantime? I mean, I think that's a fantastic question, Jesse, because I, I am asking myself, like, what can I do? So here I sit in New York State, Really quick to remind anybody who will listen, if you're in the capital region and you need services, our doors are open and they're not closing. And yet my heart is just broken for people across the country who are looking at this dramatic limitation on people's basic right to freedom. I think all we can do is raise our voices. All we can do is keep like keep the gas pedal down and say, this is not okay. Be loud, be aggressive about it. 
in any any turn, vote in your primaries, you know, hold politicians accountable for what's happened. Be prepared and start preparing. So how are we going to get medication abortion drugs to people who need them? There are not-for-profit organizations that have been working with countries that have severe access issues for people in those countries. We can do that here in this country. We're going to have to treat part of our nation as a third world healthcare access space. That's the Legislative Gazette's Jesse King speaking with Upper Hudson Planned Parenthood President Shelley Hegan. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government, politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Well, Alan, you spoke with the Assembly Majority Leader, Crystal People Stokes, this week for your Capital Connection program. She's an African American from the Buffalo area, and you talked about the governor's race. She has endorsed Kathy Hochul which is interesting because of the fact that Tish James, the African-American attorney general, has also announced she's going to run. But she said this isn't about color. It's about her regard for the current governor, Kathy Hochul's integrity, how she operates in politics, brought her in, for example, in the Buffalo area. And she says she's sticking with her Buffalo sister. That's right. Look, in politics, geography sometimes is everything. They both come from the Buffalo region. You better believe loyalty counts for a lot here. Hochul is way ahead in the polls right now, and the majority leader knows that, and she is a very good and adept politician. Right now, her words and her decision make a great deal of sense. She's the number two person in the New York State Assembly. She counts for a lot. She's of color herself. However, I believe that Tish James is going to be uh, be uh, taking a lot, if not most, of the black vote in New York City and the surrounding areas. And remember, she's from the area and Hochul is not. There's a good reason, David, that so many politicians think they could be governor. Where now we see the unlikely Tom Swasey saying, I'm in. They're not doing that. For nothing at all. They're doing it because they think that Hochul is not going to make it. And we can certainly see that when there's an open seat in politics, as an open office, a lot of people come out. But in this case, you have an incumbent governor. You have somebody who has been endorsed by most of the establishment that I can see. And therefore, it's very interesting that the opponents are lining up to get into this race. There's a reason for that. She knows it. I know it. We all know it because the Democrats really took it on the chin over this issue of bail reform. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, it is what it is. We're going forward uh, understanding that this is a dynamite issue uh, for the Democrats and they have to learn how to handle it. 
Flash. CNN suspends Chris Cuomo indefinitely. Oof. Tuesday, one day after the New York State Attorney General's office released transcripts showing the extent of his involvement in assisting his brother, then Governor Andrew Cuomo, as he faced multiple allegations of sexual harassment. You know, we read about his close relationship with the head of the network, Jeff Zucker, and his top ratings for his program on the network. A shocker? Well, I got it wrong, that's for sure. They've had other chances to discipline the younger Cuomo, and they haven't done it. As you say, Zucker and Cuomo were friends. But it turns out that there was probably something in there that made the network worried. We do know some of it. We do know that Christopher was devoted to his brother and said some things. The question that we all have is what things were said that would lead Zucker and his friends at CNN to basically tell Cuomo to get lost. Because when you suspend somebody indefinitely, indefinitely goes way out into space. So something must have happened, David, that we don't know about. I don't know if Zucker didn't want to do it. They had stuck by Chris. As you say, his ratings were good. It was helpful to the network. And yet something must have been in those tapes or in those remarks that Christopher made that made the people at CNN real worried. After all, they have their credibility to watch out for also. Legislative Gazette Political Observer, Alan Shartok. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustino. Owners of small farms in New York are warning that a proposal to pay overtime after their workers reach 40 hours each week could put some of them out of business. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports a state wage board is set to consider lowering the overtime threshold from 60 hours. Until 2020, farm owners did not have to pay overtime until their workers had spent 80 hours in one week doing work, like picking crops or milking cows. But a 2019 law required that the threshold be lowered to 60 hours a week. Farmers like Brian Reeves, who owns a vegetable and berry farm near Syracuse, say they have adjusted. He says he hired 15 more workers than in previous years so that everyone could keep to the 60-hour limit, and he didn't have to pay overtime. When the threshold's at 60, many farms can make minor adjustments, pay a little overtime, get a few more workers. It works out. But the 2019 change also included a provision to allow the State Department of Labor Wage Board to periodically revisit the 60-hour threshold and decide whether it should be lowered to 40 hours a week. That would match nearly every other industry in the state and the nation. The board decided at the end of 2020 to leave the 60-hour threshold in place, but to reevaluate that decision in mid-December. Assemblyman Billy Jones, a Plattsburgh Democrat, was one of a handful of lawmakers who joined the farmers. Jones, who grew up on a dairy farm, says the farms run on an extremely thin profit margin and simply can't afford a 40-hour threshold for overtime. They just can't do it. 
This will be the death nail for many of our farmers. The farmers came to the Capitol to deliver letters to Governor Kathy Hochul, urging her to support keeping the 60-hour threshold for now. They argue that their businesses face unique challenges that other industries do not. Reeves says crop harvests are beholden to the weather, and there's often a very limited window to get the work done. These aren't widgets where we can make them months ahead, store them in a warehouse, sell them when the market improves, put on a third shift. It's, it's, it's a, the product's perishable. Timeliness is critical in in any aspect of agriculture, certainly in crop production. The Senate sponsor of the original legislation, Senator Jessica Ramos, was hesitant to back enacting the 40-hour threshold right now. Speaking on public radio's The Capitol Press Room earlier this fall, Ramos says farm workers deserve the rights that other employees have, but she says she realizes that farmers have been coping with the COVID-19 pandemic and severe storms caused by climate change. I trust the wage board to take all of these factors into consideration and make the best possible decision. Um, I want to see a path to 40 hours um, as soon as it makes sense uh, for our economy. The Farm Laborers Wage Board has not yet set a date for a meeting, but their decision is due by December 15th. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. As New York's Independent Redistricting Commission considers new electoral maps, The leaders of three capital region cities gathered this week, pushing the IRC to keep Albany, Schenectady, and Troy together in the same congressional district. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard reports. In the rotunda at Schenectady City Hall Wednesday, Mayor Gary McCarthy was joined by Mayors Kathy Sheehan and Patrick Madden of Albany and Troy, respectively. All are Democrats. Currently, all three cities are represented in Washington by Democrat Paul Tonko of the 20th House District. But with New York losing a congressional seat due to the most recent census, the map will change. New York's Independent Redistricting Commission is considering two congressional maps, one that favors Democrats, the other Republicans. But the map that includes more Democratic-leaning districts carves Schenectady out of the capital region and moves it to the district that is currently represented by Democratic Representative Antonio Delgado of the 19th District. McCarthy says the mayors want to keep the Tri-City area together. We're fortunate to have uh, strong leadership in our current congressman. That district, there's a lot of commonality in it. It meets the criteria of redistricting, and I believe it creates a platform for continued success. Rep Tonko has also been vocal on the issue. Tonko, who hails from Amsterdam, risks being redistricted out of representing the heart of the capital region. Troy Mayor Patrick Madden says the three cities, which are counted together as a metropolitan area, share families, businesses, social and economic interests, a public transit system, and the Capital District Transportation Authority, and even the Tri-City Valley Cats baseball team, where giant-headed mascots of the mayors run the bases. At a time where communities advocated for and are now receiving federal coronavirus relief aid, Madden said a split would dilute the voice of the area in Washington. The communities of Albany and Schenectady and Troy, we're strong partners. We collaborate often on common issues that impact our communities. As mayors, we're constantly in conversation about challenges that we share. These conversations reinforce 
the, the, the importance of a shared congressional representative. In the early months of the pandemic under the Cuomo administration, Mayor Kathy Sheehan served on the regional control room for the eight-county capital region, though Madden and McCarthy did not. Using it as an example of their unification, Sheehan said she'd speak with her counterparts in Schenectady and Troy after the weekly control room call with state leaders. We met on a, a Zoom call, as everybody uh, met back in those days, uh, to talk about uh, what we were experiencing, what we were hearing from our businesses, what we wanted to communicate back to the state, make sure that the state knew and understood the challenges that we were facing. And again, it was an area where um, many of the concerns that we had for the cities of Albany and Schenectady and Troy were very much aligned. Feeding people, uh, making sure that we you know, have the infrastructure and, and the support in place to help make sure that our families were taken care of. The deadlocked IRC currently has until January to come together on new maps, but a new state law would give more power to the state legislature to draw its own maps if a decision is not reached by the IRC. Mayor McCarthy said he supports Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul's decision to sign the Democratic-backed legislation last week. I would hope that the commission is able to come to an agreement on the congressional districts and also uh, the Senate Assembly districts. But we see too many things, both in Washington and Albany, where uh, sometimes at the local level, we don't see the logic in the action and things get deadlocked and pushed back. And so I think the governor has acted appropriately to put that responsibility back and put a pathway there that's going to allow the districts to be in place so that we can move forward uh, in a timely manner with the 2022 elections. Republicans and conservatives, however, have criticized the new law as going against the will of voters who rejected an Election Day ballot measure that included similar language. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gistina. A group of students at Green High School in New York's Shenango County are protesting what they say is a problem with racial, sexual, and homophobic harassment by other students. At a recent walkout, they were met with counter-protesters who shouted racial monikers, a warning that this roughly three-and-a-half-minute story includes offensive language, including hate speech. We get more from WSKG's Megan Zarez. The bell hasn't rung yet, but at 2 o'clock, about 20 students gradually trickle out of Green Central High School. As more kids come and join them, there's cheering. Most of the kids protesting are black or Hispanic. Some identify as LGBTQ. Green High School overall is 96% white. We may be the minority, but our voices will be heard. Police cruiser passes by, but doesn't stop. As the students take turns sharing some of their experiences, there's a lot of cheering and support. I shouldn't have to go down my hallways and hear the N-word at me every day during school. Yeah. But soon after school lets out, 
something else happens. Several groups of young white men drive by in pickup trucks and cars. They're shouting profanities at the student protesters. One boy aims his profanities at the current president. The trucks continue to circle the school for nearly an hour. Five more young men stand a few feet away from the students counter-protesting. One with a long beard is wrapped in an American flag. Another, wearing a Confederate flag shirt, passes by in a truck. Another group of boys jokes about throwing rocks. See, that's what they deal with every day. That's Heather Smith. Her granddaughter is black, and she's one of the students protesting the harassment. Smith used to work in a neighboring school district. She says she knows high school bullies aren't anything new. But she says even she was surprised at how bad things had gotten at Green. I I didn't realize that there was this many. I thought we were a minority with the racist things happening with my granddaughter. I mean, they get called racial slurs. They get called faggots. One protesting student, Paris, says it often feels like the teachers and administrators just choose not to intervene. I'd just be at my locker and I just hear a whole bunch of people come down and they're saying the N-word like consistently and the teachers are just standing right there not doing anything. They're not saying anything. And she says that's why they're protesting. Her classmate, Leslie Bowen, says she's also been targeted. People say that when I'm, because I'm Latina, that I'm black and they call me the N-word and they call my friends the N-word. Leslie is also Jewish. She says sometimes the harassment is anti-Semitic, too. People also say really, like, mean things about the Nazis and, like, that Jews should have died. Superintendent Timothy Kalise says Green has an anti-bullying policy. And this summer, teachers received training on diversity, equity, and inclusion. But Kalise says there hasn't been as much progress as he'd like. You know, maybe we lost our way a little bit with reminding people, you know, last year and a half has not been normal by any means. Kalise says schools have been asked to do a lot more this year, like enforcing mask mandates and weekly testing. He also agreed there's a political tension in Green that sprung up during the 2020 election. Unfortunately, uh, students parrot what they uh, hear in, in from from families, from the rest of society. Parents and guardians like Heather Smith say that's no excuse for their kids feeling unsafe at school. In Ithaca, I'm Megan Zarez. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2149. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at the same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.